the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Chris Williams is engineering. James Blind is producing. Glad to have you with us. In the five o'clock hour today, we'll talk with Paul Larkin. He's a senior legal research fellow at the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. We're going to look at um, the Democrats' charge of perjury against the attorney general and whether or not he did, in fact, commit perjury and what uh, specifically he uh, said that they are charging crosses that legal line. We're also going to hear from Matthew Barrett, author of None Greater, The Undomesticated Attributes of God. All of that coming up in the five o'clock hour. There was a shooting this afternoon, local time at a school in Colorado. It left at least seven people injured, at least two suspects in custody, according to the sheriff's office. This is a developing story. It's possible that a third suspect remains in the school. That was, uh, again, developing and unresolved at uh, Highlands Ranch. It's a STEM school, Highlands Ranch, which is still being searched. Douglas County Under Sheriff Holly Nicholson-Cluth said at a news conference, some students remained inside and authorities were working to evacuate the elementary school. Authorities responded at about 1.53 p.m. local time to a call of shots fired in the school, the sheriff's office tweeted. They later added that seven, possibly eight students had been injured. Now, fortunately, it was injured and not fatalities. Those who were hurt were taken to a local hospital, according to the uh, sheriff's office. Authorities urge the public to avoid the area, and of course, parents and grandparents want to rush to where they know their children are to determine whether or not they are among those who are injured. And if the uh, the situation is unresolved, they're very concerned about uh, trying to rescue their children from what might be happening. Happening. Well, multiple units from the South Metro Fire Rescue reported to the scene to help. The agency said on Twitter, the Denver Office of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives also tweeted that they were responding. Colorado Governor Jared Polis, he wrote on Twitter that his office was monitoring the situation in real time while offering condolences to those affected. The STEM School Highlights Ranch is a public charter school with more than 1,850 students in kindergarten through 12th grade. And if I'm uh, if I understood reports, this was in the middle school section of that um, that complex. So, again, the story still developing. A Colorado school shooting leaves at least seven injured, two in custody with a possibility of a third. And if more information is made available during the course of this program, we'll certainly try to uh, keep you up to date. Well, taking a look at some of the uh, headlines as Democrats scheduled to vote this Wednesday on whether to hold the Attorney General William Barr in contempt of Congress. Former independent counsel Ken Starr sharply criticized the leak of special counsel Robert Mueller's letter following Barr's summary of the Russia report. Details of the March 24th letter went public shortly before Barr testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee last week. Multiple news outlets reported that Mueller raised concerns about how Barr's conclusions from the investigation were being portrayed. In an interview on um, one of the networks Monday, Starr called the release of the letter an unforgivable sin and said Mueller's complaints were whiny. Wednesday's scheduled contempt vote on Barr is based on the Justice Department's failure to provide the full text of Mueller's report by a Monday morning deadline. 
And Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, actually Stephen Mnuchin, we're not that close, has denied House Ways and Means Committee Chairman Richard Neal's request for the president's tax returns, setting up a likely court battle. In a letter on Monday, Mnuchin said that he'd relied on the advice of the Justice Department and concluded the request lacked legitimate legislative purpose. Mnuchin's decision is sure to set off in motion a series of legal battles over the president's tax returns. That's what we've seen for the last two and a half, three years. The likely options available to Democrats would be to subpoena the Internal Revenue Service for the returns or to file a lawsuit. And President Trump has pardoned a former army lieutenant who was convicted in 2009 of killing an Iraqi prisoner suspected of being an al-Qaeda terrorist. The White House announced last evening White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders cited broad support for Michael uh, Behenna of Edmond, Oklahoma, from military uh, Oklahoma elected officials and the public, including 37 generals and admirals, along with a former Pentagon inspector general, as the reason for the president's clemency grant. Sanders also said that um, uh, Behenna had been a model prisoner while serving his sentence. A military court originally sentenced him to 25 years for Um, unpremeditated murder in a combat zone. However, the Army's highest appellate court noted concern about how the trial court had handled his uh, claim of self-defense, Sanders said. The Army Clemency and Parole Board reduced his sentence to 15 years and paroled him in 2014 as soon as he was eligible. On Monday's edition of the Ingram Angle, host Laura Ingram joined the U.S. Customs and Border Protection to get an exclusive look at the border crossing of Del Rio, Texas, um, and it turns out it's one of the those hot spots where the challenges are the greatest. It is further evidence that there is a crisis at the border. It's all agreed upon now that there is a crisis. Now what that crisis is is being disputed. Whether or not it will ever actually be resolved or addressed, for that matter, remains to be seen. And Britain's Prince Harry and Meghan Markle welcomed a bouncing baby boy early uh, this uh, Monday morning. And now the world is awaiting to find out the royal newborn's name and what he looks like. On Monday, a jubilant Harry said that he and Markle still hadn't decided on his name. I mean, they've only had, what, nine months to think about it. Images of the baby boy were not released. A few details were released in a statement on Instagram. We are pleased to announce that their Royal Highness, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, welcomed their firstborn child in the early morning of May 6th, 2019. The Royal Highness's son weighs seven pounds, three ounces, the couple announced. The Duchess and the baby are both healthy and well, and the couple thank members of the public for their shared excitement and support during this very special time in their lives. More details will be shared in the forthcoming days. Now, Chris, I don't want you to lose sleep over this because I know you're just sitting on the edge of your chair uh, trying to determine what they decided to name the child and all of uh, all of that. Well, China said Tuesday its top negotiator will visit the United States for talks with American counterparts this week, even as Washington stepped up pressure with plans to hike tariffs and complaints that Beijing was backtracking on its commitments. So um, we'll see what happens there. A leading cybersecurity firm found evidence Chinese intelligence operatives repurposed National Security Agency or NSA hacking technology in 2016 to attack American allies and private firms in Europe and Asia. And the economic talks are just one part of the problem. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. A reminder that coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, we will talk with Paul Larkin to find out whether or not the attorney general perjured himself, which is a, um, a crime, a federal crime, 
and if not, why the charge is being made. So that and more in the 5 o'clock hour. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 18 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp has signed into law the state's Living Infants Fairness and Equality Act, or LIFE, a piece of legislation that would prohibit abortion after a heartbeat is detected in an embryo. That is something that usually happens between five and six weeks into a woman's pregnancy. At the bill signing, the governor recognized that the bill was, will likely be challenged in the court of law, but that Georgia will always continue to fight for life. How refreshing. A majority of voters now support eliminating the Electoral College in favor of electing presidents by popular vote, according to a new poll. About 53 percent of voters would scrap the Electoral College system in favor of the popular vote, while 43 percent prefer the status quo, according to the NBC News Wall Street Journal survey that was released yesterday. And I wonder how many among those who voted have any idea what the thinking behind the Electoral College was and how it was designed to protect many of them who live in areas that would otherwise have a uh, have less of an impact on the outcome, but does it, it matters little these days. Uh, climate alarmism, a sweeping report assessing the state of the uh, natural world, found that humans are having an unprecedented and devastating effect on global biodiversity and about one million animals and plant species now threatened with extinction. That has been challenged as an overstatement, but we'll just leave it at that. And on this day in 1984, a $180 million out-of-court settlement is announced in the Agent Orange class action lawsuit brought by Vietnam veterans who said they'd been injured by exposure to the defoliant. And on this day in 1963, the United States launches the Telstar 2 communication satellite. And on this day in 1789, America's first inaugural ball is held in New York in honor of President George Washington, who had taken the oath of office a week Earlier, So they had an inaugural ball even back then. Well, the U.S. is sending the USS Abraham Lincoln Carrier Strike Group and a bomber task force to the Middle East in order to send a clear and unmistakable message to the Iranian regime. That's a quote from National Security Advisor John Bolton announcing on Sunday night. Well, Bolton said the deployment was in response to a number of troubling and escalatory indications and warnings on the part of Tehran but didn't elaborate. Such deployments are rarely announced in advance. Any attack on the United States' interests or on those of our allies will be met with unrelenting force, Bolton said. The United States is not seeking war with the Iranian regime, but we are fully prepared to respond to any attack, whether by proxy, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, or regular Iranian forces. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who is scheduled to meet with Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov in Finland, told reporters the deployment is something we've been working on for a little while, and we will hold the Iranians accountable for attacks on American interests. If these actions take place, if they do um, by some third-party proxy, a military group, Hezbollah, uh, will be held to the Iranian leadership directly accountable uh, for those actions. Will aircraft... um, are making their way there or are already there. The strike group, which includes the aircraft carrier USS Abraham Lincoln, the guided missile cruiser USS Late Gulf, and the destroyers from Destroyer Squadron 2 departed uh, Naval Station Norfolk on the 1st of April for what the Navy describes as a regularly scheduled deployment. The strike force is under the command of Rear Admiral John Wade. The USS John Stennis aircraft carrier strike group was in the Persian Gulf as recently as late March. The Stennis and USS Abraham Lincoln joined forces in the Mediterranean Sea 
in recent days. Well, the deployment comes less than a month after the Trump administration designated Iran's elite Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps a terrorist organization. In late March, the Air Force pulled its bombers from Gutter, one of the rare times since 2001 no bombers were deployed to the Middle East. Last month, the Air Force deployed a task force of F-35 stealth fighter jets for the first time to the Middle East. And last week, some of the advanced jets carried out their first airstrikes against ISIS, according to the Air Force. Well, earlier Sunday, Axios reported that the Trump administration was preparing to announce a new set of sanctions against Iran on Wednesday, one year after the U.S. pulled out of the 2015 Iran nuclear deal. The Wall Street Journal reported last week that the White House was considering sanctions targeting petrochemical and consumer goods sales by Iran. But Axios reported Sunday that the sanctions to be announced this week would target a different sector of the rogue nation's economy. I guess we'll just actually have to wait and find out what's actually going to happen. Speculation can be unhelpful. The U.S. Navy says there have been zero cases of unsafe interactions between its warships and aircraft and Iranian forces this year as well as last The deployment also comes amid the bloodiest fighting in five years between Israel and the Palestinian militants in the Gaza Strip. Last Friday, two Israeli soldiers were wounded by snipers from the Iran-backed militant group Islamic Jihad. Late Saturday, the Israeli military announced that an airstrike had killed Hamas commander um, uh, Hamad al-Qadari, a money changer whom Israel said was a key player in transferring Iranian funds to the military groups. There is a time coming, it's probably not very soon, when we will study war no more. There will be an end to violence among men. And oh, I look forward to that day. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Well, it's crunch time in U.S.-China negotiations, and President Donald Trump may, well, he may have just thrown negotiations under the bus, or at least negotiate tours. Over the weekend, the president tweeted, sometimes I really dislike tweeting. Let me just say that. Over the weekend, the president tweeted that perhaps trade talks with China aren't going as well as we've been led to believe. Now, he has more insight than we do. Uh, This prompted domestic and international markets to respond with pessimism. For almost a year now, tariffs or attacks have been placed on certain imports Americans buy from China. A total of $50 billion worth of imports were taxed at 25 percent. Another $200 billion worth of imports are taxed at 10 percent. The president declared that the tax on the $200 billion in imports will increase to 25 percent by Friday. That's, you know, three days from now. And he continued to threaten that every other good we buy from China will soon see an import tax of 25 percent. Maybe he was attempting to accelerate the negotiations to impose a degree of urgency that uh, perhaps was not uh, seen by the president as being sufficient. Uh, But he tweeted, for 10 months, China has been paying tariffs to the United States of 25% on $50 billion of high-tech and 10% on $200 billion of other goods. These payments are partially responsible for our great economic result. The 10% will go up to 25% on Friday. $325 billion of additional goods sent to us by China remain untaxed, but will be shortly at a rate of 25%. The tariffs paid to the U.S. have had little impact on product costs, mostly borne by China. The trade deal with China continues, but too slowly as they attempt to renegotiate. No. Well, this news is not just concerning for American consumers, given that almost 18 percent of all our import goods and services come from China. The immediate shift in taxes comes as an unexpected shock following the optimistic tone coming from the White House last week. 
Well, last week, lead negotiator Ambassador Robert Lighthizer and Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin were in Beijing for talks. Mnuchin tweeted on Wednesday that these talks were productive, and he was looking forward to this week's negotiations, which were or are to take place here in the U.S. The leader of the Chinese negotiating team, Vice Premier Liu He, was supposed to visit Washington this week with a delegation of over 100 officials. However, the president's remarks may sour those plans. We'll see as events develop. We did hear that a couple of people were on a plane earlier today. I'm not sure who among those 100 officials who were expected. It's difficult to say for sure why the president decided to tweet over the weekend in a fashion that could derail the U.S.-China negotiations this week. Some suggested the Chinese side had been walking back some of its initial promises. Another reason may be that the president is uh, taking a tough negotiating position to prevent the Chinese side from attempting to move in the uh, margins as we enter the final rounds of an agreement. Either way. Two things to remember. First, the Chinese don't pay American taxes. The taxes on Chinese imports are paid by, well, American importers. Several studies over the past year show that these tariffs aren't negatively impacting Chinese producers the way the Trump administration's uh, administration rather uh, thinks they are. Second, Trump also tweeted that the U.S. has been losing five hundred billion dollars on trade with China, a possible reference to the U.S. trade deficit with China, which is three hundred and eighty nine billion In uh, 2018, the trade deficit with China, in fact, has grown from a quarterly average of about $85 billion to roughly $100 billion since the trade war with China began. What's important to understand is that the U.S. isn't losing money on trade with China. Americans are paying for products and services. This is one of almost a dozen misconceptions most people have of the U.S.-Chinese economic relationship. We'll see whether the president's uh, president's messaging helps finalize, perhaps before the Group of 20 summit in late June, or prolongs the U.S.-China trade war. Until that time, keep your eyes on the real cost and benefits of trade. And we'll see what happens next. Well, House Democrats uh, this week will vote on H.R. 986. It's a bill that would harm Americans by leading a f- to fewer health care choices and higher health care costs. It also would undercut what polls tell us. Sixty four percent of Americans say they want in health care to build on what is working and fix what isn't. We're going to take a break here in a moment. When we come back, we'll tell you more about that. But it's uh, pretty significant to this ongoing debate over health care in America, what form it's going to take. Um, and what the president is going to propose, as we've been told, in the near uh, in the near, near term. So we'll see what happens. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 33 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Just want to remind you, coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, we're going to explore whether or not the attorney general perjured himself, which is a federal crime. Paul Larkin will join us to take a look at the... Uh, Uh, the accusations and whether or not they are accurate. We're also going to hear from Matthew Barrett, author of None Greater, The Undomesticated Attributes of God. I want to remind you that here in the Pacific Northwest, 1030 a.m. Monday through Friday, you can hear the program better together. Uh, This season, they're really, or I should say this week, they're looking at um, at how we can trust in God. And the conversation earlier today was how to not hold back to removing barriers that hinder our relationship with God and seeking victory. Tomorrow on the program, they're going to talk about worship and being free and whether or not we're choosing to bring glory to God in spite of our circumstances or we're doing so in the midst of what can be very challenging to us. Uh, Lori Crouch always has a panel of four women that join her. They're going to discuss how worshiping God means far more than 
um, then uh, hymns on Sunday. It's, it means a life that is engaged in worship on a regular basis. And that's just uh, one example of the kinds of topics that are being discussed by women who are just like you and me. Um, they talk honestly and frankly about the challenges we face as women, but always point our attention to what the word says and how we should respond if we want to uh, pl- be pleasing to God in the midst of some of those challenges. So I want to encourage you to, to uh, listen in to Better Together. It's an opportunity to engage in conversation. And oftentimes, questions that are put to them online make their way onto the program. So check that out. There are three ways to uh, watch the program. You can, of course, watch it live Monday through Friday on TBN, 1038. You can also download the TBN app or go to bettertogether.tv. You can register to watch anytime the program today, the program tomorrow, or programs that have already been aired. Each panel of women, um, uh, their leaders, and the topics they discuss change, as do the uh, members of the panel. I think you will enjoy it. Better Together, 1030 a.m., right here in our community. We have been winding our way Uh, through some of the headlines of the day in anticipation of our conversations in the 5 o'clock hour. But uh, we're learning that House Democrats this week are planning to vote on H.R. 986. The bill would undo the Trump administration's regulatory relief efforts that were designed to allow more innovative health care solutions that provided a small escape hatch from Obamacare's one-size-fits-all solution. Innovation uh, is the key to addressing Obamacare's failures to offer affordable health care that helps people access the doctor they want to see. Now, Section 1332 of the Affordable Care Act, popularly known as Obamacare, provides states with limited authority to escape the law's mandates through a waiver process and test new approaches to undoing some of the damage. Well, to make incremental progress toward the goal of expanding affordable choices and health coverage, the Trump administration, they simplified the um, the restrictive waiver process established by the previous administration. Well, the change has been uh, critical for helping people um, uh, and providing consumers uh, near-term relief without new federal spending. Um, researchers show that several states successfully have used that waiver to change market conditions sufficiently that premiums fell for individual health insurance and enrollment expanded, all while protecting the ability of people with high health care costs to access care. Premiums fell in all seven states uh, that have the 1332 waiver by as much as 42 percent, and that is significant. Uh, that's in Maryland. And when uh, premiums fell, the product was more attractive to more people, as evidenced by the fact that enrollment went up in every state with the waiver. So the vote that's uh, going to be taking place sometime this week would um, turn all of that reform on its head. Well, the Trump administration's guidance is critical because uh, the rigid and centralized federal regulation of the previous version of this um, uh, restriction of the uh, uh, had higher premiums and fewer choices and so on. Uh, contrary to the repeated claims uh, criticizing the uh, the Trump's decision, Obamacare has not been good for sick people. Networks have narrowed, meaning it's harder to see the doctor you want. Millions more are now on Medicaid, which many doctors don't even uh, accept. And Obamacare's, or at least want to, Obamacare's underlying financial incentives give insurance companies reasons to raise costs. Taxpayers have to send insurance companies more money, dollar for dollar, every time insurers raise prices. And this is a perfect recipe for the flawed outcomes we've seen for the past several years. H.R. 986 is an attempt to eliminate this waiver option, but Congress uh, will have the option to keep in place uh, what's been done and go further toward empowering patients. And uh, keep an eye open for what's happening uh, there. Well, just a few weeks before school let out last May, unexpected visitors showed up 
in uh, Bethany Mendez classroom. Uh, they didn't come to discuss the nuts and bolts of education or the work the teacher was doing to assist young students with learning disabilities. Instead, the visitors wanted to know why she was uh, leaving the teachers union and if she fully understood the ramifications of resigning her membership. Well, this made me very angry, she says, and upset to actually have them come to my classroom during instructional time during the day. Well, she um, was in an interview and she said, I thought the meeting was regarding a student who might have to go um, into one of my classes. But these were union representatives who showed up in my classroom to question me as to why I was leaving the union. Well, Mendez um, teaches elementary school students with learning disabilities in California's Fremont Unified School District. Since she had her own bouts with dyslexia when she was roughly the same age as her as a student. Uh, Mendez explained she became motivated to become a teacher and devote herself to assisting children who require specialized instruction. For union officials to interrupt her instruction time, she thought was inappropriate and overly intrusive. I struggled with dyslexia when I was little, she writes, and that was due to a vision problem. She's now 35. I was able to have surgery to fix it. For a lot of these kids, it's a brain wiring issue, and it involves how their brain interprets visual information. My goal is to help children learn and to avoid the embarrassment of not being able to read in the third and fourth grades. I'm passionate about helping kids to bridge that gap. It would be fine to have a friendly conversation outside of class, but to actually have two people come to my class while I was teaching and ask these questions I thought was a little offensive. They asked if I knew what I was doing and if I knew what um, I would be giving up. My answer is I think everyone should have a choice to either opt in or opt out of joining the union. Well, last June, in a 5-4 to four ruling, the U.S. Supreme Court struck down mandatory union dues and fees for public sector workers. In their decision in Janus versus American Federation of States, County and Municipal Employees, the justices said agency shop laws requiring non-union government workers to pay union fees violate the First Amendment rights of workers who object to the political agenda of public employee unions. In March, Mendez joined with four other teachers to file a class action lawsuit in federal court against the California Teachers Association and several local affiliates alleging that uh, the teachers unions continue to deduct dues from their paychecks in violation of the Supreme Court Janus ruling. The lawsuit also names the National Education Association, California Attorney General Xavier Bacara, uh, local school districts and local unions as defendants. Contrary to what union officials have argued, the teachers who signed union membership cards last year did not provide the California Teachers Association or local affiliates with affirmative consent to deduct dues, says a lawyer with the uh, Freedom Foundation that represents suing teachers. Uh, these membership forms don't include sufficient waiver language as required under Janus, and that is the Supreme Court ruling. So these uh, suits are uh, occurring, and this will have a significant impact not only in this sector of public employees, but I suspect if it's unconstitutional uh, for public sector employees, it's uh, highly likely the Supreme Court, if given an opportunity, will uh, issue a broader ruling that would apply to other unions outside of the public sector because it can't be constitutional in one context and unconstitutional in another. We will continue to follow the story. I think it's fascinating to see uh, what's happening. There's a federal report released and it announced that 220,300 public school teachers were physically attacked by students. 220,300 public school teachers reported that they were physically attacked by a student during the 2015-2016 school year. Now, do you think things have improved since then? 
Well, that's according to a report jointly published this month by the National Center for Education Statistics and the Bureau of Justice Statistics. Well, that's a staggering number. In 1993-94, the first year that public school teachers were surveyed on the question, 112,400 said that they were physically attacked by a student. The 220,300 public school teachers who said they were physically attacked by a student in 2015-2016 equaled approximately 5.8% of the 3,827, or I should say 3,827,100 public school teachers in the uh, uh, the NCES estimates um, uh, there were during that year. They also estimated that the 197,400 teachers who reported being physically attacked by a student in 2011-2012 also equaled 5.8% of the total public schools teachers working that year. Prior to that, in the years going back to the 93-94 survey, the highest percentage of public school teachers who reported that they had been physically assaulted by a student was 4.4%. Well, the data comes from the uh, National Teacher and Principal Survey. The data for previous school years going back to 93-94 comes from the NCES Schools and Staffing Survey, uh, which uh, has now been replaced by this new group. Well, the data was published in Indicators of School Crime and Safety 2018, a report released online this month uh, by said groups. Students in 2015-2016 was also previously published in Indicators of School Crime and Safety 2017. Well, the questionnaires used in the survey asked teachers whether in the past 12 months a student had threatened to injure them or had physically attacked them. The percentage of uh, public school teachers reporting uh, that they had been physically attacked by a student from their school in 2015-2016, 6%, was higher than in all previous survey years except 2011-2012, when the percentage was not measurably different from 2015-2016. These are the conditions rather, under which many uh, teachers are uh, teaching, or at least attempting to teach. And then there's this locally. Classrooms are in crisis. Uh, Teachers are retiring, resigning over disruptive learning. There's a full story that was featured on KGW, which you can watch um, online at their website. But teachers say they're leaving a profession they love because of an increase in classroom disruptions. Uh, KGW has been covering the issue in verbal, physical, sometimes violent, disruptive incidents in general education classrooms for months. Now some educators are retiring early or resigning because of a lack of support, training and loss of classroom time they're experiencing daily. It was also uh, it was always bad, but what got worse was the lack of support. Uh, this one teacher retired uh, early after 28 years as an educator, and uh, the last 21 years spent as a, a teacher in the Salem Kaiser School District. In a quiet day, you kind of wonder, did I do a good job? While flipping through a scrapbook of memories, the teacher said disruptive behaviors in his school reached a boiling point in his last few years of teaching. This one student was daily, by the hour, getting up, bullying kids, putting his hands on kids. Another student would run out of the class nearly every day. Not only did she have panic attacks, but she would also get up, throw her chair, and become um, a runner, as they uh, they call it. And, of course, there's been this series uh, detailing some of the challenges uh, that these teachers face. Now, I mentioned earlier, and we'll return to it after the break here in just a moment, that teachers across Oregon are participating in a walkout on Wednesday. We'll give you more details on what to expect. Uh, but lots of these um, these educators are facing real challenges. And as one teacher I quoted a moment ago said, it wasn't so much that 
the uh, the incidents were escalating, but they had less and less support behind them to deal with uh, what they're facing in the classroom. It is unacceptable for them to uh, be called upon to teach under those circumstances. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in a moment. 46 minutes after four o'clock is the time. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 50 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up at 5, we'll talk with Paul Larkin, Senior Legal Research Fellow. We'll talk about whether or not uh, Attorney General Bill, William Barr perjured himself or not. So that'll be the topic of our conversation. We'll also talk with Matthew Barrett, none greater, the undomesticated attributes of God. I want to remind you, if you are on the east side, there is a hymn sing this weekend. In fact, you might want to bring mom along. That's coming up this Saturday at New Hope Church on Southeast Stevens Road in Happy Valley. And the uh, singing begins at six o'clock. But if you'd like to join us for a uh, chicken dinner ahead of time, uh, that starts at 4.30, and that will need to be prepaid. Now, the event is free. You do need to get a ticket, so we make sure we have enough seats for you, and you can do that by calling uh, the Portland Singing Christmas Tree at 503-557-8733. That's 503-557-8733. Or go to the website, singingchristmastree.org, and let them know, yeah, I'm planning on coming, and uh, that you'd like to order the, the dinner as well, which is optional. That's $10 per plate, and it's quite a quite a feast. Uh, and again, that starts at 4.30. The singing begins at 6 o'clock, and the doors will open somewhere around 5.30. Um, on the west side, the following Saturday, which is the 18th, at Southwest Bible Church, there's another opportunity to do the same thing. There's going to be a west side hymn sing um, Saturday, May 18th, Southwest Bible Church, 6 o'clock p.m. The singing begins. There's a prepaid chicken dinner. That begins at 4.30, and you can go to singingchristmastree.org. Let them know you're coming. Tickets are required, but the event is free. Well, as I mentioned, um, classrooms are in crisis. Teachers are retiring, resigning over disruptive learning, and it's uh, simply unacceptable. And teachers do not feel that they are supported. I noted in California, which, of course, is not Oregon, um, that hundreds packed the California Capitol. This was in April in protest of a package of bills aimed at reforming and restricting charter schools in the California area. It would soon be illegal in California for schools to suspend students for being disrupted. Illegal to suspend students for being disruptive. Now, you don't want to just suspend kids willy-nilly, but if they're being disruptive and students within that classroom are unable to learn, something has to be available to teachers. A bill banning that practice for K-12 through students in both public and charter schools sailed to passage in the California Senate. The bill moves to the uh, uh, assembly, which is their house. An overwhelming body of research confirmed that suspending students at any age fails to improve student behavior and greatly increases the likelihood that the student will fail, be pushed out of school and or have contact with the juvenile justice system. Uh, One would hope there would be something that would provide backup to the teacher uh, so that the student who is disruptive is not permitted to continue to disrupt What's going on in the classroom now? The uh, the reasoning behind the uh, teacher walkout tomorrow in uh, the Portland area, for that matter, throughout the uh, the state, isn't disruptive students, although that may play a role in it. But I wanted to remind you that tomorrow, teachers across Oregon are participating in a walkout. Uh, the numbers are anticipated to be so large that several school districts will be closed. The Oregon Education Association said in a news advisory that the walkout is aimed at advocating for students after uh, years of disinvestment. 
Not sure how to unpack that, but that's a quote. The various rallies and marches will host thousands of teachers, community members, parents clad in red as a reminder of the state legislature to fund schools with a proposed $2 billion tax package. And those taxes would come from businesses, which, of course, would be handed down to consumers. We've been following the issue of classroom disruptions across Oregon for months. The concerns of parents, teachers, lawmakers echo the reasons the OEA says they are marching. Large class sizes, missing mental and behavioral health support, uh, cut programs like art, music, P.E. Supporters will be rallying from several locations, the largest of which will be in Portland at the Portland Waterfront Park at 11 a.m. and in Salem with a rally at 1.30 p.m. and a rally at the state capitol at 3 p.m. A total of 23 school districts across the state of Oregon are closing uh, preemptively. I'll give you that name in uh, those names in just a moment. And they're planning to add another day to the end of the school year to make up for this uh, teacher walkout day. Now, among the 23 schools, this may not be an exhaustive list, but among them in Washington County, the Beaverton School District, Hillsboro and Tualatin, Tiger Tualatin School Districts, and Clackamas County, the Lake Oswego, North Clackamas, and Westland Wilsonville School Districts. In Multnomah County, uh, David Douglas, uh, Gresham, Park Rose School Districts, as well as Portland Public Schools, and the Reynolds School District as well. So you can plan on teachers um, being elsewhere tomorrow, and you will, of course, need to make arrangements for your sons and daughters who would otherwise be in the classroom. I know we have an election. You probably were mailed ballots uh, just a short time ago in various uh, districts, and for the most part, we're talking about school districts. And it can be very challenging to know where these men and women stand, what kind of leaders uh, they might be. You can read the voter's guide, but it's it's not always as comprehensive as we'd like them to be. They can avoid issues they don't want to talk about. They can emphasize things they think might be more appealing and can be somewhat misleading. I did note that uh, the Oregon Right to Life PAC, their board and staff, they've been evaluating and issuing endorsements for school board races, and you can go to their website for more information on that. The ballots are due on the 21st of May, and if you'd like a little bit of help, they cover the Bethel School District, Eagle Point, Grants Pass, Greater Albany, uh, Hillsborough, North Santiam, Perrydale, Pleasant Hill, Roseburg, Salem-Kaiser, Sweet Home, Three Rivers, Westland, Willamette Park, and, uh, and so on. Uh, you can look up information that may be helpful to you. Um, there, just one resource. Of course, the voter's guide that is sent to us by the state is also intended to be helpful, but I find sometimes it falls short. But you use what you have. The important thing is to do your best to vote well um, because school district um, and the school boards matter more than uh, we may realize. Well, a bill that would remove the non medical vaccine exemption for school children passed the Oregon House uh, yesterday. After more than two hours of debate that showcased the passion that issue generated, proponents of House Bill 3063, which passed 35 to 25, contended that requiring vaccinations for school attendance is a responsible step government should take to protect public health. They warned of the possible widespread return of diseases that vaccines have all but eliminated from the country if vaccination rates continue to decline. We're moving toward a tipping point where the herd immunity is being lost, says Representative Mitch Greenlick from Portland, one of the bill's chief sponsors. It's time now to get that under control and move back to the place where all our children are protected. Well, opponents, they argue that this is a dangerous overstep of government, uh, that it is not healthy for all students and parents for whatever reason, medical or um, religious, should have the freedom to uh, opt out. So opponents said the bill was a dangerous overstep, a trampling on parental rights and an individual's freedom of choice. 
Uh, parental rights are, of course, restricted and and compressing these days anyway. But they added the bill would have numerous unintended consequences, including the removal of thousands of children from schools because of their parents' decision not to vaccinate. And that is one option. The bill is a hammer blow against the social fabric of our state. Representative Bill Post of Kaiser uh, said on the uh, House floor. It's based on a manufactured crisis. Well, two Republicans joined 33 Democrats in support of the bill, while four Democrats voted against it. HB 3063 now moves to the Senate uh, and they will vote upon it as well. While vaccine legislation wasn't a pre-session priority for the legislative leadership, a record number of measles cases this year forced the issue to the front for many lawmakers, although Oregon was not hit as hard as, say, the state of Washington. And as opponents said, they they believe it's been overstated. I'll leave that to your judgment. According to the Centers for Disease Control, as of May 3rd, um, there had been 764 confirmed cases of measles in the United States. That's over the entire uh, country, 764 Uh, the most in 25 years. In the Pacific Northwest, an outbreak caused 73 measles cases in Clark County. Um, Oregon has had 14 cases this year, according to the Oregon Health Authority, four tied to the Washington outbreak and 10 unrelated, including two in Marion County. Measles was declared eliminated in the United States in the year 2000. Well, during the debate yesterday, supporters of the bill pointed to the increased number of cases as a sign the country could be moving toward a public health emergency as vaccine hesitancy becomes more prevalent. Um, But with no compelling public health crisis in the state of Oregon, this bill is not the Oregon way, says Representative Christine Drazen, representing opponents. It's not necessary here. Staying the course is not reversing course. Well, we'll see what happens in the Senate, but uh, the bill passed in the House and has now been passed along to the Senate. If you feel strongly about the issue, now is the time to speak with your representatives in the Oregon Senate. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. When we return, we'll talk with Paul Larkin about uh, whether or not the attorney general uh, perjured himself. We'll also hear from Matthew Barrett on the undomesticated attributes of God. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. My next guest, Paul Larkin, writes this in The Daily Signal about whether or not perjury was committed by the attorney general. Disappointed with, frustrated by, and angry at special counsel Robert Mueller's unhelpful conclusion that President Donald Trump was not in cahoots with the Russians during the 2016 campaign, Democrats are desperately searching for something, anything that they can use to impeach the Mueller report by impugning the integrity of the attorney general, William Barr. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi went so far on Thursday as to accuse Barr of committing perjury when he answered a question by Representative Charlie Crist of the House Appropriations Committee on the 9th of April. She is flat wrong. Well, Paul Larkin joins us to talk about whether or not the attorney general committed perjury and what grounds uh, Nancy Pelosi and others are citing as evidence that they say he did. Paul Larkin is senior leaser, uh, re- I should say, Senior Legal Research Fellow at the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies, the Institute for Constitutional Government on uh, democ- on. Um, well, I'm I'm mixing things here. In any event, he joins us to, to try to clarify uh, what in terms of uh, the attorney general's comments was perjury or not. Thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. 
Okay, um, there's a lot being said about the attorney general and statements or misstatements, depending on which side of this argument you're on, uh, that constitute perjury. Now, that's a legal word. Can you first of all define it for us? And then let's talk about whether or not the attorney general is guilty of having committed perjury. Perjury is a federal offense. It is committed when someone willfully lies. That is, someone knowing something to be false nonetheless affirms that it is true while under oath, and what he affirms is material to what's at issue. Basically, if somebody asks you how much you weigh, generally that's not going to be important. So if you decide to fib and give yourself a few extra pounds, it doesn't matter. However, if they're fitting you for a spacesuit, then yes, it does matter. In this case, what the allegation is is the following. He was asked by, that is, Bill Barr was asked by Charlie Crist whether he was familiar with reports that had emerged stating that members of the special counsel's team were unhappy with the terse nature of his report. And Crist said, do you know what they're talking about? The bottom line is this. Barr's answer was not perjury. Absolutely not. Definitively not. No one would claim, I think, reasonably that this was perjury if it weren't for a highly politicized environment. So Nancy Pelosi and others who are now charging the attorney general with uh, committing perjury and suggesting that he should be impeached, uh, that he is no longer fit to hold the office, are relying on the collective ignorance of the, the American people who may not understand what perjury is, certainly in this context or maybe in general. That's right. I mean, think about it for a minute. Chris said reports have surfaced that some people are unhappy with your letter. Do you know? And then he goes on and asks the question, do you know what they're talking about? Well, the there could refer to the reports or it could refer to the staff of the independent counsel. Either way, uh, Chris didn't give Barr any specifics and Barr didn't have any specifics. He had a letter from Bob Mueller. Mueller said that uh, the, uh, there were people in the office concerned that uh, Barr's first letter to Congress didn't adequately explain the background and setting and all of that under which the special counsel issued his report. That's it. The, the letter from Mueller to Barr didn't have any specifics, and Barr didn't talk with either the media sources or the staff. So he had no idea what the specifics were. But you know what? He went on to try to be helpful. Right after he said no, he said, but I think what they're getting at is I didn't have enough of an explanation in my letter as to the nature of the investigation and uh, the facts that it uncovered. Well, that's far from being perjury. That's trying to help Chris know why uh, Barr did what he did, because he then goes on and says, I couldn't give them more information because I didn't have anything that hadn't been sanitized from grand jury material. And it was incumbent on Barr not to disclose grand jury material. He would have violated the law if he had disclosed grand jury material. So to some extent, the claim that he acted improperly is kind of ironic because they're unhappy that he was willing to comply with the law. Hmm. Now, at no point in that exchange was there a challenge to the conclusion that was struck in the letter that preceded the release of the entire report, which we now all have access to. 
uh, as to the, the conclusion or the content of it. That wasn't the issue that it was inaccurate. It was that more information was not made available. Right. And you know what? If you're going to charge someone with perjury, it's incumbent on the government to clearly and precisely define what it wants to know. If you ask somebody, was the light red or green when someone drove through the light? And you say it was red when you know it to be green, that's perjury. That's not what happened here. If Chris didn't like the answer, he could have followed up. He could have said, well, uh, what do you mean? How much did you know about what the staff wanted? Uh, and then Barr probably would have gone on and said, you know, I had the letter that Bob Mueller sent me, and then I called him, and I spoke with Mueller. I didn't speak with the staff because he didn't. He didn't speak with the staff. He didn't speak with the journalists. I think that this is, to say it's much ado about nothing, gives that phrase more heft that it's entitled to in this case. I guess the other question that comes to mind is, why is the, the, the letter that preceded the release of the lightly redacted version of the Mueller report, why is this relevant now, given the fact that it preceded the release of the full report, giving access to not only the members of Congress, but to the American people, to the Mueller report? Why is this even a, an issue that they're discussing? Well, keep in mind Bill Barr had said that he is conducting an investigation into how this whole matter wound up being a criminal investigation mm -hmm. to begin with. And uh, if people are worried that he might find something and uh, that shows this entire investigation into whether the president was in cahoots with Russia started uh, on a fraud, that will besmirch the integrity of everything that they've been saying uh, for the last two years. If you think the president was in cahoots with the Russians, it's bad enough to find out that the investigation shows no. It's worse to find out if the investigation got started on a pretext. So they're maybe trying to disparage his good name because they're worried about what he's going to find out later this year or next. Hmm. I think uh, the American people are very interested in learning. And I saw a poll earlier today that indicates the majority of Americans, both Democrats and Republicans, very interested in how this all started. Because I think for most of us, we want to get to the bottom line. What's the truth of what happened so that we can avoid um, whatever might have happened from occurring again uh, in the future. Now, the um, the House is considering holding the attorney general in contempt of court for failing to come and to testify before them. As a matter of, of a protocol, the attorney general declined because he did not want to submit himself to questions from staff uh, attorneys. Is this all part of the same uh, effort to discredit him, to undermine the uh, conclusions drawn by the Mueller report and the possible conclusions that the Department of Justice might draw as to how all of this started in the first place? It sure seems that way. I mean, there's only two possible bases on which he could be held in contempt, and neither of them are legally sufficient. One is that he didn't turn over to Congress all of the material that uh, they want. Well, that's not sufficient because the rules of criminal procedure prohibit the attorney general from disclosing grand jury material. So he couldn't have turned that over. Secondly, because he didn't appear to testify. He wasn't, well, he wasn't subpoenaed to testify. I mean, the, the most you could say is um, he was rude for not showing up. Uh, but there's a difference between being rude and contemptuous. And he it was not contemptuous because he was under no legal obligation to show up. Hmm. 
So this sort of gives uh, weight to um, the attorney general's complaint about the politicization of the criminal justice process uh, that we've seen over these last two years and certainly over these last several weeks. Well, it's a serious problem. And that's one thing I think you were right to point out the public should be concerned about. Because we expect that the criminal law will be applied even-handedly, regardless of party, regardless of race, regardless of ideology, regardless of religion. And if we find out that that's not happening, then we are in a far worse situation than most people realize. And I think uh, we need to make sure if that's happening that it's corrected and doesn't happen again. Well, one would certainly hope that would be the case. Paul Larkin, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Appreciate it very much. Again, Paul Larkin is a Senior Legal Research Fellow at the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies, the Institute for Constitutional Government, on uh, whether or not the perjury was committed by the Attorney General, as is being alleged by, uh, by Democrats. All right, coming up next, we're going to hear from Matthew Barrett, None Greater, the Undomesticated Attributes of God. So stay with us. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, you're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. We're being told that Russian evangelicals are being penalized uh, more than any other group in Russia under their new anti-evangelism laws. Not quite so new, but following the ban on Jehovah's Witnesses, evangelical Protestants, we're being told, have become the most punished group under the country's controversial anti-missionary laws. More than half of all cases of alleged violations last year were against evangelicals of the 159 individuals or organizations who were prosecuted for demonstrating their faith in public, living out their faith as we ought. 50 were Pentecostals, 39 were Baptists, according to an analysis from Forum 18. It's a news service that's covering religious freedom issues in Russia and in the surrounding Slavic countries. So far this year, Russian authorities uh, interrupted a Baptist worship service in April and charged its 71-year-old pastor with illegal missionary activity. In January, two Baptists were punished for discussing their faith at a bus stop. Hmm. The 2016... um, uh, Yaravaya law uh, uh, bans Russians from inviting outsiders to join their faith, even online or in their own homes, even in their own homes, unless they have a government permit through a registered religious organization. And even then, they can only evangelize in designated churches and religious sites. Now, evangelicals in the former Soviet countries say that even as many Christians outside the state affiliated Russian Orthodox Church heed the restrictions, Violators are more likely to face punishment when charged by authorities. The fines start at 5,000 rubles for individuals, um, $75 roughly, and at least 50,000 rubles or $750 for organizations. Believers are afraid to carry the word of God to the masses because they fear fines. One Pentecostal union lawyer, Vladimir Azalin, told Forum 18, as ever, law enforcement agencies assume they, that any church activity is missionary activity, which is certainly not true. So even when they're simply engaged in worship, as you and I uh, would on a regular basis, it is misinterpreted and uh, therefore they're subject to fines. For some Protestant Christians, the rules have turned into a no-win situation. Even displaying the full name of their organization to comply with one provision of the law has been interrupted or rather interpreted as a violation of another. Last year, a a Baptist pastor in the Perm region was found guilty for hanging a sign reading House of Prayer of the International Council of Churches of Evangelical Christian Baptists worship service every Sunday at 10 a.m. 
according to Forum 18. Well, the placement suggested that the defendant's um, defendant carries out missionary activity aimed at uh, disseminating information about the beliefs of the church, among other persons who are not members, the verdict concluded. The vast majority of Protestant uh, congregations worship on property that's designated for residential use since laws restrict churches' ability to lease or buy land for themselves. Russia ended up uh, issuing a, a clarifying rule in March, that was last March, after churches were being penalized for distributing basic information to their own flock. The Constitutional Court decided that notices about services, ceremonies, or events only violate the anti-missionary laws if they indicate missionary activity will be a defining feature of that gathering. But evangelicals still haven't been able to avoid the penalties. Last month, authorities appeared in in the middle of a Sunday worship service um, along the coast of the Black Sea. According to reports, the choir stopped singing, Jesus is my lighthouse, as the pastor Uh, disputed with officials. Two days later, he received a summons alleging illegal missionary activity. So the choir singing in the context of the church was unacceptable. An elder in the 50-person congregation told Radio Free Europe that they had started receiving weekly calls from investigators demanding summaries of the sermons and reports of attendance. Meanwhile, their neighbors also suffered under the recent crackdown. In March, authorities tore down an unauthorized Pentecostal meeting house, banned the Seventh-day Adventist gathering, and deported two Mormon missionaries back to the United States. The United States Commission on International Religious Freedom, their annual report released last week, also called out Russia's continued violations, writing, religious and other communities can be financially blacklisted or liquidated, and individuals can be subjected to criminal prosecution for social media posts that are arbitrarily determined to offend the religious sensibilities of others, which essentially means saying anything about one's faith at all. Russia made its way onto the uh, uh, USCIRF Uh, list for the first time in 2017, largely due to the evangelism restrictions that were enacted a year ago. These are brothers and sisters in the faith, and this is how they are trying to live out faithfully the call and charge on their lives. And then there was a, uh, a recent report that says that Christian persecution, this is around the globe, is at near genocide levels. Um, This is according to a report ordered by Foreign Secretary Jeremy Hunt. The review, led by the Bishop of Truro, the Right Reverend Philip Mount Stephen, estimated that one in three people suffer from religious persecution. Uh, Christians were the most persecuted religious group, if found. Uh, Mr. Hunt said he felt that political correctness had played a part in the issue not being confronted. Uh, The uh, interim report said that the main impact of genocidal acts against Christians is exodus, and that Christianity faced being wiped out from parts of the Middle East. It warned the uh, religion is at risk of disappearing in some parts of the world, pointing to figures which claimed Christians in Palestine represent less than 1.5% of the population, while in Iraq they had fallen from 1.5 million before 2003 to fewer than 120,000. Evidence shows not only the geographic spread of anti-Christian persecution, but also its increasing severity, the bishop wrote. Media caption, Prince Charles, it's uh, it's an indescribable tragedy that Christianity is now under such threat in the Middle East. Well, in some regions, the level and nature of persecution is arguably coming close to meeting the international definition of genocide, according to that adopted by the U.N. The foreign secretary commissioned the review on Boxing Day 2018. This is in the U.K., 
amid an outcry over the treatment of um, Asia Bibi, the Christian woman who faced death threats after being acquitted of blasphemy in Pakistan. There have been attacks in Sri Lanka as well, India and other places. Its findings come after more than 250 people were killed, more than 500 wounded in attacks at hotels and churches there in Sri Lanka on Easter Sunday. Mr. Hunt, who is um, on a week-long tour of Africa, said he thought governments had been asleep over the persecution of Christians, but that this report and the attacks in Sri Lanka woke everyone up with an enormous shock. He added, I think there is a misplaced worry that it is somehow colonialist to talk about a religion that was associated with colonial powers rather than the countries that we marched into as colonizers. Uh, That has perhaps created an awkwardness in talking about the issue. The role of missionaries was always a controversial one, and that has, I think, he goes on to say, also led some people to shy away from the topic. Uh, What we have forgotten is that atmosphere of political correctness is actually the Christians that are being persecuted are some of the poorest people on the planet. In response to the report, the president of the Board of Deputies of British Jews, Maria Van uh, Van der Zyl, said Jews had often been the targets of persecution and felt for Christians who were discriminated against on the basis of their faith. She went on to say whether it is in an authoritarian regime or bigotry masked in the mistaken guise of religion, reports like this one launched today remind us that there are many places in which Christians face appalling levels of violence, abuse and harassment. Um, the review is due to publish its final findings sometime this summer. We'll try to get a hold of that and share that Uh, With you, But it reminds us, first of all, of how privileged we are to live in the United States. While we might see some light harassment or people might look down on us, we are free to worship um, in this country. That is not the case for the vast majority of Christians across the globe. And we would do well to remember them, certainly in prayer. Tomorrow on the program, as I'm celebrating my 37th wedding anniversary, Mike Lee will fill in for me. And then on Thursday, Pastor Rich Jones. We're looking forward to some great days of interviews and conversation. I'll be back on Friday. We'll lighten up. I hope you'll join us. I want to thank uh, Chris Williams for engineering, James Bin for producing, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Good night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.